Chapter 18 of Countdown by Kurt Becker, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. 8. Mike Pukin lived in a small house on Cottonwood Street, which was, as he smilingly said, on the wrong side of the tracks. The house consisted of one fairly large room, a small kitchen, and a tiny bath. It was furnished simply, a sofa which opened up into a double bed, a studio couch, a worn desk on which were neat little piles of paper and a telephone, and two comfortable chairs matching the sofa. There were bookshelves between the windows on both sides of the room, and a small radio. The kitchen was a marvel of compactness, immaculately clean, and in the little hallway that led to the bathroom there was a bureau for storing what did not fit in the closet. The whole thing was tidy and spotless, and Ned found it very friendly. They talked in the kitchen as they ate the excellent meal of steak and potatoes that Mike prepared, with a minimum of fuss. The coach listened with an intent expression as Ned told him about the quarrel, the trip to Baldwin's compound, and its aftermath. He asked pointed questions, and examined with great care the porcelain whistle which Ned showed him. When the boy, his voice slightly steady with emotion, told him what Baldwin had said about the Kingsleys, and why he had said it, his face became stern, and his lips pursed in a long, silent whistle. "'I wish I knew what to tell you, Ned,' he said quietly. "'Owen is your guardian, and he hasn't abused you. "'The only thing you can do is alert Police Chief Drew "'and ask him to keep an eye out. "'Chances are the Kingsleys are out legally. "'They wouldn't dare show up here otherwise. "'The other thing is to make sure that you're alone as little as possible. "'I don't think they're foolish enough to try anything before witnesses. "'You have a good lock on your door, don't you?' "'I suppose so,' Ned answered. I never tried it. Maybe Walt's father can think of something. We can try him tomorrow. Now how about cleaning up here while I freshen up? I don't want to see Amanda looking like an unwashed coal heaver. Ned found it pleasant enough in the library. He sat at one table, pasting card pockets into books, and copying numbers from a typed list to the fly-leaves with an indelible pencil sharpened to a fine point. At another table, across the room, Mike and Miss Deeb, sat with their heads close together, talking in low tones, as they worked, their hands occasionally touching, and the books going unmarked for long periods, as they became immersed in their conversation. Amanda Deep was about twenty-five or so, with a friendly face that was liberally sprinkled with freckles, and a soft, throaty voice that Ned found musical, and Mike obviously found completely enchanting. Occasionally borrowers would drop in, and Miss Deeb would come hurrying to the reception desk, blushing at the understanding smiles they bestowed on her. A couple of them spoke to Ned, and one old man with swarthy skin, bald head, and a luxuriant white mustache engaged Mike and the librarian in extended and obviously very courtly conversation. Ned recognized him. He was Don Francisco Jose Maria de Tovar who owned and operated a large and highly successful flower business with the help of three grown grandsons. Ned had been through the hothouses once, and the old man had treated him like a prized customer, instead of someone sent to pick up flowers for the altar. The florist was in subdued high spirits this evening. His youngest grandson, Miguel, was about to become a father for the first time. "'I am too excited to wait at home,' the old man said, and I would not want to make myself obnoxious at the hospital. It was about eleven when Mike and Ned finally returned to the little house on Cottonwood Street, after having escorted Miss Steve to her home." There Ned discreetly waited at the neat picket fence, while Mike disappeared with his companion in the shadows of the porch, and reappeared after a few minutes, his feet doing an unconscious little dance on the cement walk. "'Better wipe Miss Deeb off your face,' Ned said dryly as they entered Mike's house and put on the lights. "'That color looks better on her mouth than it does on yours.' 
Mike grinned and wiped his lips with a handkerchief, looking at the bright red smear on the white cloth and shaking his head slightly at the sight. Tastes much better than it looks. He folded the handkerchief again and put it carefully back in his pocket. He reached out and ruffled Ned's hair affectionately. You might as well know it before you worm it out of me. She said yes. How about that? Miss Amanda Pukin. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Sure does, Ned said, squeezing the other strong square hand in both his own. Sure sounds wonderful, Mike. Congratulations. Thanks, kid. His face became serious again, and he ruffled Ned's hair a second time. You look beat. Why don't you wash up while I get this monster open for you? Towels on the top drawer of the bureau. Pajamas in the third. Hop to it. Mike was already bedded down on the couch when Ned came into the room wearing a pair of spectacularly colored pajamas he had found in the drawer. Unexpectedly, there was a knock on the door. You get it, Mike grinned. Even in those screaming eagles, you look more respectable than I would in a pair of shorts. There was a policeman at the door, a tall, tired-looking man with a worried look on his face. Ned recognized him. His name was Jerry Welch, and he was a friendly sort, always ready to spend a minute chatting with the students on their way to and from school. He looked surprised to see Ned, and then his expression of worry deepened. Hi, Jerry. Mike waved a friendly hand from the bed. What brings you around at this time? Somebody rob a bank? Somebody tried, the officer said grimly. What? Mike sat up abruptly, visibly shocked. You serious? When? Somebody tried, the officer repeated grimly. It didn't quite work, but the chief was shot. He's in the hospital now with three bullets in him. That's terrible. No wonder you look like a wreck. Mike was out of bed in an instant, padding around the floor toward the kitchen. Sit down, Jerry. I'll get you some coffee. This isn't a social call, Mike, the policeman said. Wait a minute. Mike's face was incredulous. You mean you think that I'm mixed up in this? Please, Mike. The tall man held up his hand placatingly. Don't blow a gasket. We've been friends too long for that. Sit down and listen. All right. Mike sat on the edge of the bed. Shoot. Can you prove you weren't near the bank tonight about ten? Sure I can. Ned here was with me all night. He can tell you. That's not good enough. The other shook his head. He's going to have to prove he wasn't there either. Jerry, what's going on here, anyway? Please, Mike, answer my question. I don't like to do this. You know that. I owe you a lot. Okay, okay. I'll be patient. Ned and I spent the evening in the library working. Miss Dee will back that up. So will Mr. Tovar and Miss Brewster and Steve Dobson and a lot of other people who saw us there. We didn't leave until about 10.30. Relief wiped away the concern on the officer's face, and he smiled. I knew it, he said. I was sure of it. How about that coffee? Okay, about fifteen minutes ago, young Kingsley and a couple of his friends walked into headquarters and said they saw you two and Miguel Tovar running away from the bank right after the shooting. Miguel Tovar? Ned put in. That's silly. He was at the hospital waiting for his baby to be born. You sure? The officer demanded. That's what his grandfather said, Mike assured him. It's Miguel's first baby. He's been with his wife there since five this afternoon. Why do you suppose those kids came up with the story? Doesn't make sense. Yes, it does, Mike said slowly. Owen and the Kingsleys have been trying to get Ned alone for a couple of days now. Ned told Rob he was going to be with me. If we're arrested, it would be easy for Owen to come around to the jail and take Ned home. 
He can't very well do it here without reckoning with me. It does make sense in a crazy sort of way. What are they trying to get him alone for? The policeman wanted to know. Give him a beating, Mike said laconically, which he doesn't deserve. Makes sense, the policeman nodded. But what about young Tovar? That's easy. Kingsley's men have been gunning for the foreigners. Mexicans seen near the place of the crime. Nice headline, wouldn't it be? Besides, the old senor tossed out a couple of Rob's pals one day's when they came around his hothouse. Hmm. The officer nodded thoughtfully, then grinned. I got an idea. How about that coffee? Mike nodded and padded into the kitchen. Use your phone? Help yourself. Mike's voice rose above the sound of running water and clashing pans. Ned watched. The tall man picked up the phone and asked for headquarters. Then he winked at Ned and spoke into the mouthpiece, very clearly. Sarge? Welch here. I thought you'd like to know that Buchan, Bartley, and Tovar all have ironclad alibis. Those kids are lying. He listened, nodding a couple of times, and added, Absolutely positive. There's no mistake. He pulled the instrument away, and Ned heard the angry sputtering at the other end. Sure, they ought to be kicked. How about just holding them as material witnesses? They said they were at the scene and saw the criminals. A night in jail might do them good. He listened, his face widening into a smile of satisfaction, and then he slowly hung up. Hurry up with that java, Mike, he called. I got a wife waiting at home for her wandering boy. Come in here, Mike called. What do you think I am, a butler? You know, Watch said, you still make the worst coffee in town, except for my wife. I can hardly wait to see the paper in the morning. Why? Kingsley's bought into it. wonder how they'll get around Rob Kingsley spending a night in jail. Serves the brat right, Mike declared, but I'm not so sure it's smart. I got a feeling about Kingsley, and it isn't good. The man's not sane, I'm sure of that. He's crazy, and he's smart. That makes him very dangerous. He yawned. Have you no home? I've got class to teach tomorrow. The officer shook hands and departed. Mike rinsed out the cups and put them away, chatting all the while about how he and Jerry had flown together in Korea and cemented a lasting friendship by pulling each other out of dangerous spots. Ned listened, hardly able to keep his eyes open, and grinned when Mike told him to hit the sack without waiting for him. But once in bed he could not sleep. He listened to Mike's final bit of house-cleaning and watched him as he padded around on his bare feet, deftly restoring things to their proper place. His movements, Ned thought, were like the man himself, swift and sure and purposeful. He's like a rock, Ned thought, solid and strong. I'd like to be like that. Oddly, Mike reminded him of Steve Westlake. Both men had the same quality of strength and dependability. Finally, Mike slipped under the covers and switched off the lamp. For a long time, Ned lay quietly on his back in his borrowed pajamas, his hands lying loosely at his sides. Mike, he called softly. What is it, kid? The voice was sleepy. Mike, when I was a kid, I used to hear my father and mother sometimes when they went to bed. They used to pray together aloud. Would you pray aloud with me, Mike? For a moment there was silence. Ned could almost feel Mike's eyes turning his way. Then gravely, the man recited the first half of the Our Father and the first half of the Hail Mary, waiting for Ned to finish each. When they had finished, Mike sighed with satisfaction. Pleasant dreams, Buster, he said quietly. And don't worry, I'll drive you to church in the morning. I have a lot to be thankful for, too. Next morning, the paper carried the story about the attempted bank robbery and the shooting of police chief Emmett Drew. 
It also carried a boxed editorial on the front page, indignantly criticizing the police for their inefficiency in not being able to prevent the crime, and denouncing the barbarous behavior of the whole department, enforcing three respectable young citizens who had volunteered information to spend the night in jail like common criminals. Buried in the back pages was the information that a son had been born the previous evening to Mr. and Mrs. Miguel de Tovar Yotovar, and that the father was bringing suit against Robson Kingsley and his father for defamation of character, slander, and criminal libel for the sum of one million dollars. End of chapter 18